Oh yeah. What's up everybody? How's everybody doing, man? Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, February 12th, 2021, man. We got the room packed. We got a lot of people coming in, man. I hope you guys are having a great week. Good to see all you guys here. A lot of a lot of old friends. Looks like some new names. I love seeing this, man. How you guys doing today? What's going on, y'all? Not much, man. Just just hanging out. Just hanging out, man. Super excited you guys are here. Tom, how's it going? We got Coach. We got Waco. We got we got we got Christian. Good to see you again, man. It's been a while, man. So many. Uh, hey guys, yeah. Oh man, it's good to see you. All right, guys. So, man, I wish Kate was here. I, I wish we can give her all just a round of applause for putting on an amazing event. Uh, I had no part in planning that event at all, but I can imagine how stressful and intense that was for her to organize that many people live. Um, so big ups to Kate. Thank you for putting on such an amazing event. I really, really appreciate that. I know the community appreciates it as well. Um, this is bravo, man. Stellar. I, I've, I foresee, I foresee in the very near future, a lot of knockoff events coming. It was very, very insightful. Uh, oh, Kosh, session. You froze on this. Oh. I I, it was very very inf- insightful session like uh, the github particularly the github part was really helpful so thanks oh awesome. thank you yeah yeah my my presentation is available on her website or not her website but on her youtube channel so definitely go check it out if you did not get an opportunity to check it out um mine along with all the other presenters who did just an amazing job all of that there uh, all of that is there for you to check out so definitely uh, go for it so guys, welcome. Um, excited to have you guys here. So I guess let's let's uh, let's open up with some questions, man. Anybody have any questions? Please go for it. Uh, I do have one. Yeah, yeah. So it got me thinking today. Um, I actually thought about this last week after the happy hours, and then Wiko he asked about people how they take notes and like what approaches they use, where they put them. Um, and my broader question is around like how do people when they're when you're learning something new, like how do you keep track of it? And like, how do you do that? Like, are you building a second brain as some people do? Are you just taking notes and organizing them? Like what are some strategies that people here have for kind of absorbing all this new knowledge as we're constantly learning? Oh man, that's an excellent question. Um, I'd love to hear what everybody else does, but yeah, I take, I take notes. Like I, I mostly do my notes by hand. I think there's something about, uh, physically writing stuff down that helps me personally absorb it a lot better. It, it strengthens that connection in a weird way. So that's what I do. Um, but even before that, like, let's say I open up like, you know, a new book by O'Reilly, that's a data science book. Um, as soon as I open up that chapter, first thing I do is I'll skim through the chapter at a high level. Like I'll just look through, you know, what are all the the figures that we have in here? Oh, great. What are the captions for the figures? what are some of the the bolded keywords that are popping out? And then immediately I'll start writing those down, right? And when I write that down, I'm not like defining it or anything, just write it down. So I consciously am aware of it, right? Um, and like, there's a couple of brain processes that happen when you do this, right? When you're flipping through a book and uh, looking at stuff before you dive deep, you're priming the pump, so to speak, right? Making yourself aware of the concepts that you need to look out for. Um, so then like that network in your brain called the reticular activating system kind of starts firing up and starts looking for, um, I guess, 
that information. So that's kind of my approach to it. And just notes, man, I've got like, <clears throat> I've got notes and notes and notebooks. Like I got to send you guys a picture of my desk one of these days where I got going on here. It's uh, it's pretty intense, but I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear from the community, man. What do you guys do? Especially I'd love to hear from Tom and I'd love to hear from, uh, from Jacqueline. Cause I know Jacqueline's doing some hardcore studying. I can tell you, um, I literally was in grad school realizing how much I loved learning. And by the way, me talking about grad school is a historic event. But um, I, God brought mind maps mind way, my way. And I love mind maps. Uh, I can't encourage them enough. Um, when my team and I write a blog post together, we start with a mind map, we break it down to an outline. And uh, But even though I hate paper and I hate writing notes, I have to agree with Harpreet. Um, the digital mind map tools are great, but they're never as good as doing a mind map on paper. I've just got to confess that. But that's my one little piece. I'd like to, I'm, I'm actually very excited to hear from others on this one. Yes, mind maps are freaking amazing. Yes, excellent point. Uh, so everybody that just came in, the topic is, you know, we've got so much to study, so much to learn. How do people keep track of what it is that they're studying, what it is that they're learning? Tom talked about mind maps. I think that's great. So here's like a, a glimpse of like, you know, some of my notes, right, that are, that are right. So I've got two columns, right? One column is note taking, one column is note making, right? So that's one thing that I do as well. So I'll take notes and then I'll regurgitate it, reinterpret it, and then mind maps as well. I don't think I have any mind maps in this notebook, uh, but that's a big, big thing. Um, Jacqueline, I had, what do you do? Oh, yeah. And, and, a couple yeah. questions to to bounce off of both y'all, Harp and, yeah. uh, and Tom. Um, you were talking about before you uh, entirely read, read a book, uh, you kind of skim through everything and, and kind of take notes on that. How far do you go in the book? Do you uh, maybe skim a chapter and then and then read the chapter, or do you like go through the entire book? Because I feel like personally, I would lose a lot of that in, in the process. Yeah, chapter at a time for me. I'll go through gotcha. just one chapter and I'll read the the summary first, and then go back and and read the other stuff. And then get through the chapter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And um, Tom, before I forget, um, y'all were talking about mind maps and all that. Um, and you, you draw them out by hand. What does that really look like in my head? Um, when I think of mind maps, I think of circles, some ideas, lines connecting circles, more ideas branching off like that. Is that about right? Not exactly. It's, it's, uh, am I muted? Am I on? No. Okay. Sorry. Um, it's very nonlinear. It's just central point, bigger points. And then mine gets quite messy. Thank you for doing that. Trying to hold it still. Oh, it's in mirror image. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. No, that's, that's cool, though. That, that helps a lot. Um, but uh, Tony Buzan published a book. It's old now. It's, it may even be out of print, so maybe you can find it for free. But it, it, it's very well done. And um, to your other question, though, um, when Juco is, uh, do I do it chapter at a time or whole book? Yes. I do both, gotcha. <laughs> but I, I actually, I actually do. I'll spend a few times just breezing the table of contents, then looking through the whole book and Juco, I can't even explain it to you, but it warms your mind up to the material. And uh, it's like you've read three references instead of one. I had to do it with Dennis's book on transformers and it totally helped a lot. 
but then sometimes you just find you're in the groove after a while and you you just read a chapter straight because you've already gotten acquainted with the material yay is this the book that's the book that's the book yeah so um that that's another great resource i'd recommend um barbara oakley has this course on coursera absolutely free called learning how to learn uh it is hands down like in terms of metrics the most popular online course ever taken uh, I did an interview with her that won't be released for quite some time. It's in, it's in the pipeline, um, but definitely look up her work. She is phenomenal. Jim quick has a lot of great resources as well. Um, but yeah, let, let's hear. So, so for everybody just came in, the topic is how the hell do we keep up with learning? What's our learning habits? What are our learning techniques? Uh, so let's hear from Jacqueline. And after Jacqueline, let's hear from, from Eric. Cause I think both of you guys are still in school, right? So I think it'd be great to hear what you uh, students are doing to keep up. Um, So I just finished a master's in mathematics. And what I found helped me the most is um, when I'm going through a textbook, I am always taking notes on the side, whether it's like physically or even just if it's uh, on my computer, I have notes open beside. And I'm always doing a summary of what I'm doing. And uh, I find that before moving on to like a next topic, I can always revisit my notes. And um, yeah, I find it helps a lot, this summarization. Thank you, Jacqueline. Eric, what about you? Uh, doing stuff badly uh, is a good way to to, to learn. <laughs> uh, so I guess kind of a couple of things is like when I started learning Python, I was like, oh, I want to understand something. About, I found this data set of like hacked hacked passwords. And so I wanted to like learn some stuff about hacked passwords, but I had to figure out like, how do I get the first character off of a password or whatever? And so it was just learning how am I, how am I actually going to do that? And somewhere I still have the gist um, on GitHub, that's it's terrible. I would never share it, but uh, I mean, I would never share it for a resume thing. But it was a really good learning experience, and so I really enjoyed it. Good way to get started. And the other thing is just like I read, <clears throat> like reading stuff, like doing uh, I call wiki walks, where you know if you're on Wikipedia and you like deep click links for a while, and by the time you get a few links into it, you know. A few, a few links deep, you don't understand anything that's on the page anymore. It's like, all right, I've gone far enough. I guess I can go back. And then, you know, so it's kind of like exhausting, exhausting that, that knowledge. And so I, I think that, and that also though, it builds lots of like the Chip and Dan Heath, they talk about ideas and things being like Velcro, right? And I see it as, you know, when I'm learning about whatever topic it is, if I go and I look at several kind of surrounding topics, it's like, I'm kind of putting the little, you know, the, the prickly side of the Velcro out so that as I'm going about the rest of my life, something else is going to come along and it's going to catch and, and I'm going to be able to understand and relate to that thing or that person, that concept, whatever, a little better. It's also like good Jeopardy prep because you're just kind of like always connected to an idea, different ideas. Yeah. The Heath brothers wrote the book made to stick, tried to get them on the show. Yeah, try to get them on the podcast, but didn't work out this time around. Um, but yeah, let, let's let's hear from a couple more people. Let's hear from Monica and let's hear from Ben. And then guys, while we're hearing responses from Monica and Ben, if you have a question, feel free to type out, I have a question into the chat and then that way I can uh, hold your place in line. Uh, but I do have a couple of questions from, from a community member through email that we can get into as well. So Monica and then Ben. All right, learning. This is my favorite topic. Um, So anytime I'm learning anything, I like to share what I'm learning with others. If you teach others, um, you kind of solidify in your own head, like what you're 
what you're learning. Um, kind of like explain like I'm five, if you're able to explain a concept uh, that's very detailed to somebody that really doesn't know the topic, then you know that you understand it yourself really well. So I think just sharing with others and kind of getting discussions going with others and then um, it kind of loops into like learning from other people and then it just, it, it's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like this. Uh, I forgot. I don't know who this quote is from, but when you teach something, you get to learn it twice. I think that might be like an ancient wisdom quote, but yeah, that that's a good one. Uh, ben, what about you? He said he had a candidate call in the chat and he had to drop. <laughs> All right. So I, I guess, okay. Yeah, I guess he's gone. So um, anybody else want to want to chime in on this one? If not, then we can take okay. some for Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. <laughs> just quickly, uh, my keyword is a cheat sheet. Uh, that doesn't just go to books or anything, but it goes for everything on my projects, my ideas. Uh, basically, I always have like a heading, which is very, very short, just to kind of trigger your memory. Then I have a short summary that I make after, just very, very brief. And technically, after that, uh, I will add links to sites or references or anything like that. And then I have a folder structure on my computer where I save it, where it's linked to whether it's work-related, if it's a book you read, whatever it is, just to categorize. Um, technically, uh, another place to keep the cheat sheet for a particular book, you put it inside the book. That way, when you go back into the book, instead of going through the whole thing, you have reference to pages or whatever topics or how you structure that. And to me, the key is to build your own structure so that it's your own keywords, your own, it's something that you're going to be using for a long time. It's not just today. And you will see that over time, you're actually going to start building it uh, very like you're doing your programming or whatever you do. You actually start to build a structure in it. And guess what? You can always automate that structure. (laughs) Uh, we have the tools, I guess, to do that. I use my Excel. Um, I work in auditing, so I do a lot of formulas, analyzing things in Excel. So I got like a whole folder structure just on all the formulas that I've used. When I suddenly find a solution, and believe me, you always find I just recently realized that or function and how to really utilize it. So now I have a, an actual physical uh, work that I've done and with the formula and the results. So in the future, I can go back because I know that three months from now, I won't remember, but I remember I used. So the cheat sheet approach to me, that's the key. I'm lazy. Um, but like I always say, if you're not lazy, they wouldn't have invented the wheel if it wasn't for laziness. <laughs> this, is <laughs> this is true. Thank you, Tor. Great, great tips. Um, so Austin, you got a bunch of resources and yeah. help there, man. So, um, so yeah, let's. Uh, so I've got in terms of questions in line. I've got Tor, then I got Tom, then I got Anas, and then question couple of questions for that I got through email that we can uh, do as well. Um, shout out to Dave. I just saw Dave come in. Sorry guys, I'm like bouncing around with screens here. Uh, Greg is in the house too. Good to see you, Greg. Uh, Jennifer, how you doing? Dylan, all right, man. I love it. Um, Tor, do you uh, do you want to take over and sure? I can continue. I'm thinking about a, pro, a concept right now, um, and given that concept, it means that you will be potentially using, I mean, like I said, I'm lazy. I don't want to invent all the formulas and the programming or learning or whatever it is. So the question I have is more related to copyrights and how you utilize other people's work and what kind of, I mean, 
free is always the best. However, there are payments, there are accreditations, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just wondering how you're dealing with that technically and also from a more soft approach. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting question. Um, I think there's there's a few different licensing types that I've seen on like GitHub. Um, and I, I don't know if, if that's what you're talking if that's what you're talking about, but um, I, I picked one up on GitHub today. Um, so those are things that the Benford analysis, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not really inventing anything new. Yeah. And yeah. but people may have programmed it differently. Um, yeah. but I didn't see any reference to cost. I could just download it. And that was for uh, for our our program, so I'm just starting to kind of pick up on these things. Yeah, so yeah, that's great. I'd love to hear from everybody else on this. But like in my perspective, like if I see it put up on GitHub and there's like code code chunks that I can be inspired by, and I'll freely use them. But typically, stuff that's on GitHub, there's always a license file. In that license file, there's like one of three licenses. There's like the MIT license, and I can't remember the other two. And typically, stuff on GitHub is is open source, and it believe it is freely available for you to use but um i mean i'd I'd love to hear let's hear from from dave on this one okay so first up i'm not a lawyer so don't sue me if i tell you something and you get sued yourself (laughs) so generally speaking open source licenses don't doesn't necessarily mean that you can do whatever you want with the code in particular. So you really have to pay attention to what license the software is provided under. Some of the most permissive are the MIT license. Um, I believe the Apache 2 license is also quite um, permissive as well. Unfortunately, a lot of R is released under some of the GPL licenses, and they are they can be quite restrictive depending on what you want to do, especially in a commercial software situation. So the best course of action is, generally speaking, if the license isn't embedded in the code, like, for example, in the comments, which is a good practice, by the way, or if it's not specifically listed in the GitHub, assume it's one of the more restrictive GPL licenses at a minimum. It's a good idea, especially, like I said, especially if you're using it for commercial purposes. So if you're trying to build a product that you're going to sell, you can be bit big time. For example, some of the early GPL licenses basically say, if you embed our code in your commercial product, you now have to open source all of your code because essentially we're like a virus. We plug into your code base and we take it over. So be very, very careful with borrowing people's code. Generally speaking, the best plan of attack toward, and you're not gonna like hearing this, is write it yourself and then you're golden. (laughs) But then I have to learn. You oh, have thanks. some good tips there. Um, see, I think Eric just posted something in here about uh, the various license types. Like, I, I just, I, I still like an artist. What can I say? Um, that's, just, that's just what I do. Uh, anybody else have experience with this? Oh, by the way, I see Nicholas in the building. What's up, Nicholas? Thanks for, for hanging out. Um, anybody else have any tips on stealing like an artist when it comes to code on GitHub? I do that shit all the time. All right, it doesn't look like it. All right, Tom, it is your turn, my friend. Yeah, and I will just follow up by reminding everyone that uh, David and Andy, pragmatic programmer, authors, 20-plus year, top-selling book, they're really big proponents of using your IDE for everything. So 
just speaking for them, take more notes in your ID and, and get better at Git by keeping your notes in GitHub or GitLab or whatever. But my very important question to all of us, and just help me, yes, good job, <laughs> is, uh, hey, can uh, y'all help me remember to ask Ben what that picture of him was on his latest post? I guess Ben in the woods, but he hasn't given an answer yet. So when he comes back on, Harpreet, if you could just remember to ask him that for us. Yeah, definitely. Ask Ben about his uh, picture he's posing as the homeless hippie prophet. Those are his words during an office hour, not mine. All right. Um, but wait, that, that was your question, Tom? Okay, cool. So uh, let's go to uh, Anas. Anas, are you still here? Yeah, yeah, still here. Thank you. So recently I've been looking for more books that talks about the uh, like you can say like the way of thinking when you approach a business in data science, because a lot of books out there about like code. Uh, okay, so you learn the, the regression analysis, clustering, but I need the book that kind of guide me. How can I approach that? In a, how can I implement that in a business so I can make money out of the data that I have? So yeah, yeah insights. Yeah, so the way of thinking. My absolute favorite book is uh, Data Science for Business by uh, Foster Provost and Timothy Fawcett, um, or Tom Fawcett. Unfortunately, Fawcett just passed away earlier this year. He was hit by a car. It was tragic. Um, but the Data Science for Business is an excellent book. I absolutely love that book. I highly recommend it. Um, and another book that is by Doug Rose. Well, actually, Doug Rose has a number of courses on LinkedIn learning that are just phenomenal. And it's all about kind of like the business aspect of, of data science. Um, so I, I recommend those two highly. Um, data science for business, it might be a little bit old, but like it's more focused on principles than tools and, and things like that. So it's kind of evergreen in that sense. Um, there's also Dave's class, I think, that is a uh, supposed to be pretty amazing right dave uh do you got any uh, tips for how to learn about applying data science in business contexts so first of all all of my classes are amazing no i'm kidding i'm kidding uh so my partner and i have a class that we teach um, which is called business analysis for everyone and it's actually based on the book that i just put in the chat which is making sense of data by dr donald j wheeler um, people want to get super fascinated, quite frankly, with like, oh, I need to build a recommendation engine. I need to build this and I need to build that to really drive business value. Actually, most business value in most companies is not from that. It's literally just doing analytics rigorously day in and day out across all the roles in the company. So I always recommend you start there first before you worry about, hey, can I build a recommendation engine and drive 25% increase in revenue? I mean, which of course you can do potentially, but that's a very big long-term project. You can actually get a lot of disproportionate value in the business from applying relatively simple analytical techniques across various scenarios. For example, marketing, that's a big one. Absolutely great advice. I never even knew about that book. I'm gonna have to download that. Um, how, about, how about anybody else, Tom or Greg? or Monica or Jennifer, any tips on data science for business? 
Antonio here. Can you hear me, Herbie? Oh, yeah, I guess I can hear you. Sorry, man. It's the, the people who have their cameras turned off. They don't show up on my screen, so I apologize for that. Yeah, Antonio, go for it. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I couldn't make it home. I got stuck in traffic, so I'm listening from the car. Um, but I think the one book that made the most difference for me in terms of was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And it's because... Uh, I was reading this recently, and it's so true. Well, 85% of AI and machine learning projects fail due to communication issues rather than technology. And I've noticed that at my work, there was like, a, we built this beautiful data product. It was about customer acquisition, and the teams weren't using it. So I started this, and I started asking questions, what is happening? I was Everybody was trying to split. And then I, I got... I use skills from that. And I talked to the guy. He's like, well, I'm not using it because I don't like the guy who built it. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? That was the issue all along, you know? And just to really drill down into that book, retreat, learn how to talk to people. Unfortunately, and I hate this part of it, but I noticed that if you don't like it's a lot of politics in companies and if people don't like you, doesn't matter how good your data product is, they're going to. They're not going to use it. Um, so that's been my experience. So I always recommend that one, How to Win Friends and Influence People, one of my favorites. And also the one you mentioned before, Made to Stick. I think it's also great. A lot of times we can think that our project is great. We built stuff, but if it's not uh, simple, if the business doesn't understand it, they won't use it. So those are the two books I, I recommend. Oh, man, I absolutely love that. How to Win Friends and Influence People is uh, amazing, an amazing, amazing book. And I think you can actually get it for free online because it's it's like that classic. So definitely look for that. Yeah, it, it's so old. You just type it in. It's free. <laughs> yeah. uh, Nicholas, I'd love to hear from you on this one. Very quick point from me. I think most of us will probably admit that we live in the world of data. Like that's our little bubble that we live in and we interact with data. We speak the language of data and it's easy to forget that most other people, the vast majority of people in the world don't care about data in the way that we do. Um, and I think it's worth remembering that when we interact with other people to speak their language, to speak in terms of things that they're interested in um, and to sort of suppress our instincts to talk about models and to talk tech jargon and, and languages. And actually these are people that don't really live in our world. They don't know a lot about it and they just want to know what the bottom line is, what that means in terms or in terminology that they care about. And I just think that's a really important point to remember. I just wanted to add Harpreet really quick. Okay. I, Go for it. Nic Nicholas and I seem like two peas in a pod on this topic. And, um, you don't really need to read a book, in my opinion. You need to practice a four-letter word, care. Get off your butt. Go talk to your business counterparts. Find out where they're bleeding, where they're hurting. Find that intersection between what they need and what you can do as a data scientist. But it happens by um, converting people from not hating you to knowing that you care. And the reason I can speak so expertly on this is because I've screwed, at, screwed up at it worse than anyone I've ever met, including Dave Langer. So Anas, there you go, man. You got a, you got a lot of great advice there. So again, just repeating for Thank people in, in terms of books, you've got uh, Data Science for Business by uh, Foster Provost and the late Tom Fawcett. Uh, you've got Making Sense of Data by Donald J. Wheeler. You've got Pete Rose's book, I think it's just called Data Science or Data Science for Business. I'd also like to throw out there uh, Pete Rose, not Pete, 
Doug Rose, not Pete Rose. Pete Rose is a baseball player. Doug Rose. Uh, Doug Rose has classes on LinkedIn, which are amazing. And then you've also got kind of like the, the people management side of it as well, which everybody mentioned here. And to that end, I would say there's also a person that does some amazing work, also has classes on LinkedIn learning, Keith McCormick. I recently released an episode with him called the non-obvious skills for data science. So go check that out. I believe he will be on Ravit's show at some point. So if you don't like my interview style and you like his better, you can go listen to that one. Um, so a lot of great resources there. Uh, so go check that out as well. Did that help? If I can quickly piggyback onto Tom's comment, um, there might be some people here listening who think, well, I'm not working in data for the minute. I don't have any business stakeholders. So how does this apply to me? How can I care about business problems when I'm not working within the business? Um, one of the things that's really cool that you can do is be really cheeky and identify people who are working within data science, within analytics, in industries or companies that you may be interested in actually going to work for and reach out to them on LinkedIn. And um, you might find you don't get responses from some people, but a lot of us are quite friendly and we'll quite happily chat. And that's a great opportunity to start asking questions around what kind of problems do you work on within within the businesses or the industries that you work in? What challenges do you face? And you can get some really useful intelligence that will inform things like project portfolios when you start applying for jobs. So that's a good way to, to dig into business problems if you're not already employed. Thank you very much, Nicholas. And there's a great comment in the chat by Christian. If you want to go ahead and uh, verbalize that, that'd be great. Or if you want me to just read it out loud, I can do that as well. But I'd love to hear from you, Christian. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so kind of the, this, this, it's interesting because this comes to my mind, not just with data. Can you guys hear me okay, by the way? Yeah, perfectly clear. Okay, cool. So it's not just with data, but with uh, products and everything. You can often get caught up in the features and the solutions and the tools, but pretty much in every school, it's really just best to focus on outcomes and that's pretty much the whole comment for me absolutely love it and eric please shout out this uh, meaningful project i was supposed to include it in the newsletter i just remembered us so so sorry for that go ahead and make sure you post uh, about this hackathon in the slack channel as well but go ahead mm -hmm. and, and let the people at home know about this yeah so there are actually a couple of cool hackathons coming up one is from democracy lab it's their saint hacktricks day uh, hackathon and that's on march 13th and so I'll, I'll drop the the link in the chat and the puns don't get any better um as as the event draws nearer so just just expect that um i went to their hacky new year um one and i'm planning on doing this one too it's it's great because a lot of the the organizations that come are re repeat repeat customers or whatever and so i'm looking forward to working with the same group which means i can build on something i learned last time and so even though i don't work there or get paid i can be part of that organization and contribute and then the other is the hack for housing which is by the cape fear collective which is um, they're based here in north carolina but you don't have to be in north carolina to participate but it's all housing and uh you know equality based work and so yeah, it's it's definitely gonna be really cool. That's April, I think April 17th. So it's, it's a little bit further out, but I'll drop the link to that as well. Thank you very much, Eric. Appreciate that. So next up, I want to ask a question, but I want to start with um, with Greg's response. I hit Greg up a couple of days ago on Wednesday, actually. And um, so we're, we're undertaking something huge at work. Um, you know, as you guys know, I'm like the first data scientist in the organization. And now my company is really ready to start making um, data a differentiator. That's our slogan for 2021. And um, so I've got myself and I've got a um, essentially a, a 
super smart developer that's uh, that's going to be helping me. And I asked him, I was like, hey, man, like, you know, what do you think is the one thing that I need to know to help make all of this successful? What do I need to learn or brush up on to help make a successful this mission that we're, we're undertaking? Um, and I specifically asked for like a, a technical skill or technical know-how, uh, but he responded with, um, with essentially what I'm about to uh, phrase as the question here. So I reached out to Greg and I asked him, I was wondering if you had any resources for estimating time and cost for data related projects. When working with engineers, I feel I need to be able to understand and estimate the cost of my own on my own instead of having engineers tell me. Um, And that was the thing that uh, my colleague had told me. He's like, yeah, I think, you know, if anything, man, you probably need to do a better job of learning how to estimate uh, how much things cost, how how much time it will take, and and so on. Uh, so Greg gave me a really really great great answer, but he's going to share that with us right here. And I'd love to hear from everybody else as well. Yeah, uh, thanks, uh, Harpreet, and 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 I appreciate you uh, getting with me on this one. Um, so I have um, quite a bit of projects that I'm working with my uh, centralized technical team with. Uh, that would leverage um, machine learning, but I I find it a struggle to uh, find the right resource or the right tool that helps me uh, hone in on uh, what the time it will take to produce that and what is the cost, right? So uh, I kind of came up with my own framework uh, to make it happen. And where I start is um, making peace, first of all, with uh, what I can estimate versus what the tech team can estimate. So um, what I can estimate is coming up with a business case uh, with all my metrics uh, that can speak to the, to the impact of my project. And I take this uh, 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 business case and truncate it into uh, small deliverables. So it could be inside of a quarter or two quarters. And inside of these quarters, I also leave, try to leave room for uh, beta testing because I know engineering team will want to uh, not simply deliver at once. Once I have that, I would go to my uh, uh, tech teams to validate that the business case mandates some sort of machine learning uh, use case. If that's it, then we move to the next phase, which is ingesting the number of metrics that means a lot to me are impactful for my business. And for them to take those metrics and validate with their efforts, estimating their uh, cost of ownership, uh, cost of maintenance of those tools, of those ML tools, uh, a pipeline, everything like that. Um, and then they tell me whether it's worth it or not. Sometimes they would eliminate some of those uh, feature ask. Uh, sometimes they would add on to it and things like that. So uh, uh, to me, um, <clears throat> it's between emails, uh, multiple documents, I don't have a centralized tool. Uh, I could use a project management tool, but I find that um, it's quite the struggle for me to just say that projects like this is easily trackable in a project management tool. So I don't know if you guys uh, go through the same thing. Um, And simply because for me, I'm doing it for the first time for my department. I drive the technological roadmap for my department. First time we're implementing machine learning, don't know what I'm doing in terms of time of implementation, something that I'm learning on the ground, creating my own workflows and learning as I go. But I realized that I cannot just put a timer on it without the implementation of the tech teams. So meaning 
if I'm ingesting hundreds of thousands of documents in a pipeline for a document review, they need to tell me whether they have a budget to pay the bills with regards to the tools they use. For example, it could be a text track, Amazon Comprehend, those things cost money. The more documents I push through those pipelines, the more expensive, things like that. So I love that. Uh, thank you very much for that, <clears throat> Greg. Like that's very helpful for me because I mean, I've been, the roles I've been in previously have been pretty much just a uh, research-based blank check, do what you want. Uh, and now it's like, all right, I'm doing something at a high level with, for the entire organization. So I need to start keeping costs um, intact. So I'd love to hear from, let's hear from Tom and then let's hear from Dave. And then I, I definitely want to hear from Ben on this. So I'm just going to uh, reiterate the question one more time, just so Ben can hear it. I think Ben is back. Uh, so the question I was asking Greg was, um, when working with engineers, I feel like I need to be able to understand and estimate the cost of anything, any project on my own, instead of having the engineers tell me like what resources, what tips can you share with me um, to, to help? I, I apologize in it. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I apologize in advance for my cynicism because I have three degrees in engineering and I don't know one damn engineer that's ever estimated costs that I've worked with. I'm sure there are some, but I, I'm with Ben. If they have an estimate, it's no better than integer based guesses. It's just really hard. Now, if you're talking about prototype costs or, or mass production costs, that gets a little more exact. But Harpreet, if you don't mind, Ben, what were you doing in that damn picture, buddy? Oh, I was an extra in a movie. I was uh, the chosen series. I was awesome. Well, our investor was also an investor in the show, and so I was a VIP extra. So out of the 3,000 people at Summer on the Mount, I was on the front row right in front of Jesus. So I'm going to be in that show, which I think is like, every, people that know me think it's hilarious because they're like, what the hell are you doing at ben, Summer? That's, that's one of our household's favorite shows. We're just blown oh. away with how awesome it is. You, yeah, so you'll see my look of childlike wonder in the camera. No, that's awesome that you know the show. Yeah, I was down in Dallas for that. I don't know. I, I think on storytelling and evangelism, sometimes you're looking for creative outlets that are a little outside the box to maybe give you a different view on on things. Yeah, I surprised how many comments I got on that. Some of them are hilarious. People are so witty. That's a Netflix show, right? Chosen one. I remember that one. At one point, Ben, you were you were two X comments to reactions at one point. Yeah. It, so for people that don't know, it's a series on the story of Jesus, but it's treated like where the characters are actually identifiable. It's been watched in 90 million households. So it's really successful, I guess. And keep, but, in, keep an eye for, for you. So you really were playing the homeless hippie prophet. I, I was. I was I was a beggar. They, I was all dirtied up. Um, and and I, I, I don't want to say anything that will offend anyone, but I'll, I'll say this. So I, I'm not used to being surrounded by very intense evangelicals. And so it's funny because I'm going there. I'm flying down there to be in the show. And literally, I think I have three or four experiences that are just like this. I'm like, hey, what's your name? My name is Ben Taylor. And they say, when did you accept Jesus? Like immediately the second question. And it's almost scary because my reaction is like, uh, my reaction is like, yes, or like, absolutely. Oh, of course I did. But I'm doing that because I don't want to like open up a further discussion. So hopefully that didn't irritate anyone on the call. But I just, it didn't irritate me either. I just thought, oh, this is a very different world. I'm not used to being in this world. And, and it was interesting. Texas is a different country. You're from Utah. I just thought you were Mormon. It, well, most people in Utah are. That's the assumption. And so I, 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 I can't really make fun of Texas because I live in a community that's equally different. I remember uh, when I was driving through, like I was driving from 
<clears throat> Sacramento to Chicago and I was on my way to grad school and stopped by in Salt Lake City for for a night and got some beer and it was called Polygamy Porter. Oh yeah. <laughs> and yep. it's burned into my memory. Uh but I saw Jennifer was unmuted, so go for it, Jennifer. Oh I they did some of their filming here in Utah, so I'm surprised they did. you did go to Texas. That's yeah. On that. Sorry. I, yeah, you're right. They did some of their filming here. I don't know why. A, a trip to Dallas with this group of friends was always a good time. So it, it doesn't really matter where they're meeting up. I'm I'm on board. But um, to answer the question about estimated cost, I think cost is interesting because you actually don't realize that you can make a ton of assumptions. And I think as a data scientist, that feels very wrong. Like you're lying. You're like, oh my gosh, like everything is fact. I'm building a model. And it's like, no, it's not. Like your models are squishy. And so in HR, we use, they use this idea of a utility function where you have like six assumptions chained together to come up with a dollar amount. And I would encourage everyone on this call to do the same thing. You, you want to be transparent. So if someone says, where'd you get that number? You then have like kind of your rationale and your rationale is probably wrong but it's not dishonest. You know, you can have a conversation around your estimate and, and it's all finger in the wind stuff, right, Tom, where it's like, <laughs> no one's going to get a penny accurate estimate. And in HR or in marketing, a lot of times we talk about, is this, we're going to get a 2X multiplier on our investment or a 4X multiplier. And even that difference isn't that important. It's just, it's a prioritization ranking metric. Maybe we should work on the 4X project rather than the 2X project. Thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so I'd love to hear from, uh, uh, I guess, yeah, Tor. Let's hear from Tor. He's got his hand up. And after Tor, uh, Dave, I'd love to hear uh, your comments around this topic. Well, I've been working with numbers now for X amount of years. Uh, budgets are always a fun thing. When we refer to the famous engineers, bottom line is they're a pain in the ass because they will never commit. <laughs> but what I used to do, just to give you like a small tip on the, the issue of people having difficulties in giving an answer. What I used to do is I would, instead of asking for a specific, ask for a min max. That will give you a range, okay? So when you ask, when you have the range, okay, the, some people that are very uncomfortable, they will give you a large range. People that are more comfortable will give you a smaller range. Now, the people that give you a smaller range are the ones that you're going to be a little bit careful about, but they... You, they, they will, you can then ask them exactly why they're giving that short range, okay? They will then explain to you very quickly how they can get that. On the other hand, people with very large ranges, you need to talk to, you need to sit down and say, okay, why did you say men? Why did you say the maximum? Would it be fair to assume a mid, an average would be good or a median or some other facility? So, so that to me is the information gathering from people to give you input. To me, as if you are in charge of setting up this and scheduling and doing all of these things, it is your responsibility to tell people your expectations. It's very simple. If you expect them to be able to do it in 10 hours and they say, no, it can't be done in 10 hours, well, then it's your job to have them explain to you why it can't be done. Now, in a friendly way, because you're also learning. It's like with Emma, uh, you're learning that, okay, the range or the input that they give you, the feedback, next time you will say 12 hours or eight hours or whatever you're experiencing. And over time, the more experience you get with it, the more you will actually be able to challenge. And, and to me, budgeting is all about challenge in a good way. It's asking why, why, why. And like been said already, uh, with, uh, you know, data-driven or very detailed, everything has to be perfect. There is no such as a perfect world. 
Um, I'll give you an experience that I did. I was uh, operationally a cost controller for 15 countries. And we had some countries that are more difficult than others. And in the end of the day, uh, when my team and my departments, et cetera, were doing their budgets, I used a random between formula. It worked perfectly. I asked for mix, max, min, and I used a random between. Technically, my organization were often or most of the time more in line with what actually happened than a lot of the others. But then when the management team found out, the CEO and the CFO, that I used random between, um, that was the end of that story. And I left the company about six months later. <laughs> but uh, I'll be more than happy, Greg, if you want to do a, part of a separate session on this. Uh, we can talk and, and definitely, I don't know how many you're talking about people-wise, but I, we can then go through and I can actually give you some ideas. I use Excel, that's my tool, um, but depending on the size and the number of people involved, uh, it should be no problem to develop a simple yet effective budget model for you uh, to do this uh, that will also be flexible so you can use it for any type of projects as long as you have your resources, which is your cost per hour, you have your tools, which also you can calculate into cost per hour, whatever you want to do. Okay, so I'll be more than happy to take a couple of hours on that. I have lots of free time now during this COVID time. <laughs> now, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah, definitely going to take you up on that as uh, a. And it, it's, uh, it's also available to anyone else. If anyone else wants to discuss those things, um, Technically, it's one of my specialties. Well, there we go, man. If we discuss it, trust me, it'll be recorded and shared uh, as okay, part of the thanks. podcast So and on YouTube. So no worries. Um, Dave, anything to add here? Yeah. So just to give you guys my qualifications before I respond, I've been a professional software engineer. I have proposed and sold many multi-million dollar IT projects. I used to be a consultant on time and materials where I would have to create a budget. And if we went over, we lost money. So I have experience creating estimates and costs for technical projects. That being said, if you do not know how to do the work yourself, you cannot estimate it, period, end of story. You have to rely on the engineers. If you don't like your engineers and you think that they're sandbagging you, get new engineers. However, unless you know for sure what it takes to actually do the work, because you've done it, there's no way you can accurately cost estimate it. So you have to rely on other people, period, end of story. I will not tell you how many times when an accountant executive priced something out, we lost our shirt, okay? You just can't do it. So that's number one. Two, in the data science space in particular, it can get problematic. If you're trying to build a model, some sort of data-driven predictive aspect of your project is like the cornerstone of the ROI you're getting back, then it gets even more complicated because there is no guarantee at the beginning of the project that you're actually going to build a model that meets the business requirements anyway. You have no way of knowing that upfront. So there's this idea of experimentation. There's this idea that, whoa, the first pass through the model didn't work. We need to get more data or different data, or we need to do this. So you need to take that into account when you start pricing those things out. So just if it is, if you want reliable estimates, don't build any models. It's much easier that way. Well, uh, I think, Tom, Tom, you wanted to share something? I wanted to add something real quick after. It's real quick. And Ben, I'm kind of trying to leverage from an old post you did. I remember you were talking about your startup days and how there were some people that just didn't get how their 
activities made a difference to whether you guys were going to make it or not. And it, it struck me, you know, we can all get a little cynical in our roles, but I'm always looking for extreme parsimony now and the best spirit to bring to the table. And it seems like, a, I, I hope this is an off point and Greg, bring it back on if it is off point. But if everybody really had a passion to do as much as possible with as little as possible, uh, these estimates wouldn't be as big of a concern. But I, I hope that's not off point. Well, I was going to say that, you know, Tom, to, to your point, I think there's a, there are silver linings because I'm, I'm having also another type of experience. Uh, just checking here if, if people see the same way, uh, see it the same way. We're starting to hear about um, MLOps nowadays. Um, I think about AI as this infrastructure putting out like products, right? And nowadays, business teams, they're getting better and better at finding use cases. Those use cases are only increasing. Whether you're in supply chain, you're in finance, marketing, operations, you name it. And with that, you need that infrastructure to be churning, to be pushing out items. So... For one of my big projects, I'm consulting with the technical teams. And do you guys remember this term where the app was a thing? You know, there was this uh, commercial that was like, oh, you want to do this? There's an app for that. You want to do this? There's an app for that. Well, what I'm hearing is you want to do this? There's a model for that. Um, we can train. So for some reason, um, they are taking existing models for similar use cases and asking me to provide the data so they can train it and reduce the time for that model to be ready for mine. Uh, so I could have, I'll take a quick example. If you think about a product from Amazon would require a label, right? So I'm in a safety and compliance area. Inside of one label, you have multiple models that can work and provide a ta do a task. Uh, one could be um, search for a particular symbol, uh, making sure the symbol is correct and needs to be there for whatever marketplace I'm doing business in. Uh, fetch for this number, that's a registration number, do a web scraping uh, for a government website, make sure that that number is registered. Uh, another one might be, um, looks for this claim, uh, translate it, making sure the translation is right in German or, or uh, in French, whatever, you name it. So all sorts of kind of things in just one big project. And I feel like when you have a centralized team who are good at building pipelines, then you can kind of shorten the time to launch these projects, right? You can shorten your deliverables uh, a little bit better. Maybe I'm, uh, uh, other people have been through the same situation. I haven't, but I'd love to hear if anybody has, man. That's a, that's an interesting, complex question. Um, I'm going to toss this one over to, to, to Dave or Tom or Ben or anybody else who's, who's dealt I with just this. Wanted to, I just wanted to follow up. Greg, I was listening to you very carefully, and I think you brought just about the best description of uh, current best practices and estimates. It's a, and I don't know how to best do it, but it strikes me that if you really want to optimize this or maximize it, you still appeal to the human spirit to say, all right, guys, the cheaper we can do this and the faster we can do it, the more money we have for the next project. And But I'm not sure in most organizations people have enough incentive to be, that's ownership thinking. And I'm beginning to think that there's not enough ownership 
motivation for your for your average employee. I, I'm I'm really interested in this question, but I'm more interested in okay, but how do you maximize the motivation? And but you gave a classical perfect answer, Greg. But it, in, in the status quo of everybody showing up for work and putting in their eight hours, I'm I'm trying to think: can we get more creative than that? Can we get more? motivational than that. And I, I, again, I hope I'm not taking the question off topic by those points. We've got a similar thing, Tom, where engineers are not motivated by hearing the bottom line. I make um, a lot of presentations and a lot of times it's, oh, our organization has this revenue, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Let's talk about the technology. And so you may be able to incentivize on, you know, speed to the technology being the first in the world to deliver and things like that. But motivating on revenue, yeah, not not motivating to a team of, of hardcore engineers. Um, but Harpreet, to your first question about estimates, um, it's not a it's not a single point in time, um, and kind of like Dave did earlier. Uh, let me tell you why I have some experience in this. For about 15 years of my time at Intel, I was a PM. We estimated everything, and Dave's right. You can't get it right. Nobody does. I'd be a bajillionaire if I could. Um, but rely on your experts and monitor it as you go. It's a very simple formula. You've got schedule. You've got scope. You've got resources. And when you lose one, the others have to give. And so you always have to be monitoring. And when you find a team that can rapidly deliver um, a model in less time than they say, you remember that. Um, Also, buffer your schedule 50%. Thank you very much, Jennifer. I appreciate that. Uh, That's the really, really insightful tour. Um, I see you've got your hand up here. Go for it. Yeah, it was just two things. Uh, what Tom was talking about, the efficiency, and, you know, and, and Greg, and your son. To, to me, it's two things you're talking about. One is, of course, look at the efficiency, how you're working, and all the, the people that are involved, and how you can improve. To me, those are, the, how should I say, more the soft skills, okay? This is a question of, like uh, Jennifer also was saying, that it's the the benchmarking, the uh, quality control, the follow-up. But however way, you need to have a budget in the beginning. Are budget corrects? Never. They will always have. But you need to be explained, be able to explain to yourself why you're deviating from the budget. When it comes to the efficiency, etc. Okay, yeah, you may improve your efficiency. That doesn't mean you're going to have a better profit because you will have competitors out there that's going to be able to come in and do it as fast as you will. If you can do it, somebody else will. You have to be smarter all the time. And, and to me, it's more a question of using and utilizing and understanding your resources, availability, efficiency levels, etc., etc. And And these are things that you will keep track on on your own. I mean, it's not necessarily something you share unless you are a manager and you have the responsibility for the employees, then you will have to communicate back and forth. But if you're more in a position of doing the budget and the planning and resourcing, it's not your job to go and tell them if they're not efficient or not. Your job is to find a way to indirectly guide them so they become more efficient. So find a good way to communicate with the people. That's the key. Um, And over time, 
by sharing and, you know, after you finish, for example, a project to go back and discuss, this is what we planned, this is how our budget was, and then sit down and have a summary and also get their input why it was delayed. Learn from the experience. That's the key. Thank you very much. So much good advice, guys. Uh, really, really appreciate that. Um, Greg, do we answer your question at all? Because, I mean, that was, that was initially spawned off by my question. Then you had a question after that. Was was yours is good? Cool. Uh, you're muted. Yeah, yeah. So, so for sure. So if anybody sees this trend too, with, with you know, I guess if they're centralized um, and and pumping models like crazy, please do share with me how your organization is able to do that. Like, what are the tools? What are the, you know, how do you see this going, you know, the next couple of years? Because, you know, MLOps, I think they're going to continue to talk about that. And uh, a couple of startups are going to continue to come up, come forward. Dave, you probably have something, something you want to share. Yeah. yeah so um, I, I'd bet a thousand dollars that the way this is going to go is the way it's gone before. So, this concept of centers of excellence is not is nothing new. It's been around for a long time. And it has characterized every emerging technology in the general IT space over the past 25 years. When something becomes so valuable that streamlining it for the business becomes a very economic viable thing to do, you get the center of excellence. And what happens is, is that as long as you can get in the pipeline, you're golden. Right, because you're you're working with experts who know what they're doing. They have processes. They do things. They chug the stuff out. Then the problem becomes the demand builds up at the back of the funnel, and then you gotta wait. And then once when what ends up happening, people create their own budget and they hire people to do it themselves because they don't want to wait for the center of excellence to do it. So this cycle is repeated over and over again. And like I said, I'd bet big money that that's exactly what you're going to see in the machine learning space as well, because it's happened before with all kinds of things. Um, software deployments in general, CICD, um, data warehouses, ETL, data pipelines, data engineering, you name it, right? It's all over the place. It's the same pattern that you see repeated over and over again. I'd love to hear from Ben on this because I feel like Ben would have some amazing insight. Um, ben, are you still here? Yes, you are. Yeah, I'm still here. Uh, do you mind uh, focusing the question so I can make sure I'm... Yeah, yeah. Greg, do you want to um, boil it down again? So how do you see uh, the concept of MLOps? How do you see that evolved in the next couple of years? Um, I feel like a lot of people are seeing that uh, day in, day out, data science team need to be able to, you know, output models a little bit fast uh, to keep up with the requirements. And uh, how do you see that evolve? Because we're not thinking about, you know, stealing DevOps, you know, uh, uh, habits to adopt it in MLOps. Uh, how do you see the evolvement of that? Yeah, I, 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 lo I love that topic. So if 75 or 85% of AI projects fail, depending on what you think is right, the majority fail, then a small fraction I would put into the one and done category. And I would say they feel very experimental. And then the long tail or the rest, they actually live. They People rely on them. The models are constantly replaced, but they also run into... Um, they run into issues like feature drift, stuff like that. So, so, so there's a whole horror story of things that happen on the production side. And I think the AI community is slowly coming up to speed with, and that's why a lot of the MLOps discussion is concerned about that. So I think, I think for anyone doing stuff in production, it will be, it'll be something that's expected. But I, I think as a community, we're really going to start sharing fail stories more openly about, like it, when I was at Higher View, I had a feature drift excursion. 
and it was something we could not have anticipated. It came from a vendor. A vendor changed a feature threshold without telling us and it impacted customer and the customer complained, which is like the worst scenario. But we had to put systems in place to look for model drift and we didn't know we needed that. So, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that's just kind of my take on it. MLOps will, it's, it'll be a requirement for anyone that's doing anything in, in AI to kind of have the checkbox of what are the oh shit moments that you're prepared for. Because um, mm. a lot of people are reactive. They, they're allowed to say oops, but there's a lot of AI models out there where oops is not an option. Like in healthcare, like in marketing, we say oops all the time. But in <laughs> marketing is one of those domains you can say oops, but in healthcare, you can't say oops or in manufacturing, you, you don't want to say oops. Yeah, ML ops is so cool, man. It's like one of my favorite new topics to to learn about. Um, I mean, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my my sponsor for the podcast, Comet ML. They've got an amazing product, like legit, and a really cool product that that helps you um, kind of, I guess, get more insight into the whole ML ops process. Check it out if you guys get a chance. Um, so, wanted to go to a couple questions that I got on email through uh, from one of our community members, Emma. Um, First, she got two questions. First question is, what tools, commercial or open source, and architecture do you recommend for building end-to-end data science platforms? Any tips on that? I'm, I don't know if I actually understand that that question. Um, so, Harpreet, there's a lot of... I, man, I'm, I don't even want to answer this, but I, I, it's because I've, I've kind of wanted to hear other people's opinions on it for a while, but I, I'll just say why it's a, it's a very interesting topic to me. So this would be like, a, you know, Azure where uh, it's just drag and drop components to build your machine learning pipelines, or there's a host of them out there. I can't even remember their names. I have these vendors approaching me a lot of time claiming they can improve our, our development stuff. And, and uh, I, I'm not sure this is accurate. I'm, I'm confessing to everyone, but I, I have this feeling like, why are you doing this? If someone really knows Python, they don't need that. Now, I, I don't, I'm just saying that's my reaction. I don't know if that's accurate, but I get confused why they're building a company based on, uh, sorry, <laughs> it's a frustrating area for me is what I'm trying to confess. Yeah, I, that. We use we use Azure at work and some managed services as well. I see the benefit of it if you're like the only data scientist and you just can't possibly do everything on your own. And you know, maybe there's there's gaps in your knowledge and you might need some help. I could see the benefit for it there, but I also have that same kind of feeling as EB. It's like, oh well, if we can build it ourselves, why not do it? We need like three more people and it's probably cheaper to use some managed service than than doing it ourselves. But yeah, I'd love to hear from Ben and Dave on this. So it, it's been a while since I've kind of rolled up my sleeve and sleeves and done programming and, and I'm looking to get back into it. But Docker for me, was life-changing because I remember like installing Linux ISOs. I'd be like, I don't know what I did. I don't know what happened to this update. The system is screwed up and I have to like reinstall the ISO. Like I remember having that experience and when Docker came around, it just offered this level of accountability and transparency that I thought was amazing. So I, so I feel like anyone that's doing development, I would try to make sure that you kind of find that as a foundation. I think the other thing too that's happening is if you wait 10 years, whatever is best practices will be, it won't be cool anymore. Or like, I remember I, I started with like LAMP stack with PHP and my SQL and I thought, felt like a rock star. And I go interact with these React developers and they're making fun of me about like, they're like, oh, gross. You write raw SQL? 
what are you a dinosaur? Because they're used to like the model view controllers. And yeah, so th- this stuff, it's constantly changing. But Docker for me was one of those things where I thought, man, this is a godsend, like compared to how we used to do it. Thank you, Ben. Um, Greg, as a Syrian mutant, then I'd love to hear from uh, Dave on this as well. Go, go ahead, Dave. And then I just have a question for, for Ben uh, to, 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 to about Docker. So go ahead, Dave. Okay. Um, I found the question interesting, Harpreet. And the first thing I thought of, and this is being a bit of an architecture nerd, what do they mean by platform? Generally speaking, if you think about platforms from a traditional technology space, platforms are typically a collection of capabilities and services that accelerate your ability to deliver business scenarios, use cases, without having to write a bunch of code. That's typically what typifies a platform. So saying Python is a platform is that I would be like, no, that's wrong. Absolutely wrong. Python is not a platform. It's a programming language. Just like Azure itself, is it a platform Mm, or GCP or AWS? Kind of, sort of, but not really. Think of something like SAP. If you know what SAP is, SAP is a platform. Okay, that's a platform. (laughs) So if you're looking for a complete end-to-end data science platform, to my knowledge, I don't think one exists yet because the, the the, the trajectory of... MLOps and data science in general is still too nascent yet to actually have something as um, as platforming as something like SAP. Because if folks, maybe some of the folks aren't as old as I am, but back in the old days, SAP didn't exist and companies built all of their business systems from scratch and COBOL on a mainframe because they had to. Later on, they bought platforms like SAP to help them automate it and deploy all this stuff faster. So I think the answer is, her, to answer that question is, it doesn't exist yet. There are certainly platformy pieces that you still have to stitch together yourself, but there still isn't an overall data science machine learning platform yet. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate that. Uh, Greg, go for it. So I guess for me, it's for my understanding. Um, where I'm kind of uh, blind is my understanding of where Docker stop, uh, you being someone who knows how to deliver um a model, for example, and then in where a software engineer who knows the architecture of that front end product, say, I don't know, an app or uh, the Amazon website itself, how do they merge, right? So what what happens? How does that Docker, you know, connect? Do you need a state-of-the-art expert in API or how, how do we connect the two? Because you're going to have companies with legacy software that you're delivering a Docker to? How, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. So at higher view, I I could show a demo with like a flask wrapper or something around a Python script, but normally the engineers, they they would then take it from there. And that, actually higher view is probably the clumsiest handoff because you actually had a silo data science team saying, look, my Python code runs and then engineers that say, oh, like, like, uh, and actually higher view is funny. We had a Docker container that I think was larger than 10 gigs. And you throw that over to like the DevOps people and they're just like, what are you guys doing? So, so there was an awkward transition. Um, I, I think now the best practices is the, a good data scientist group. They, they try to behave more like developers where they write classes and they have Python tests. And then they would have like a readme with use cases and they wouldn't take, they wouldn't do anything with the API. They just say, here's a demo, here's an example, and here's all my version control. And at DataRobot, the data scientists that actually code in the product, 
they feel like they are 100% software engineers. They 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 don't feel like the data science silo that I experienced at higher view. Um, you know, th- th- that's that's what I'm seeing too. I'm seeing uh, I find myself talking more to software engineers than data scientists to tell you the truth, uh, and they're very uh, aware of how the models work, and they're very good at integrating to the existing system that we have. So, uh, but in terms of the Docker, it's kind of like a, I, I, I understand why it exists. I just can't put my finger on the, 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 the how. So, I, so yeah. I, I like Docker for like a, a team of data scientists or researchers that are collaborating. So it's kind of a proof of concept, like, look, it works. And then once it works, then you can work with engineering because they, uh, Amazon has some beautiful stuff like Lambdas where, I, yeah. I don't, does Lambdas run Docker? Cause we, we were running Lambdas. I think, I think we just yeah. ran pure Python. And so there could be some use cases where you don't need Docker anymore, but for my development, when I'm doing research, I love that stability. I, I don't want a software update or, or I love that I can jump to a different server. Like that, that was a big thing we dealt with at our startup is we had all these different servers. We had some huge servers, little servers, laptops, and being able to just kind of move your Docker container around uh, with the same code base was really nice. Cool. So, Thank you. I took a class on Udemy, still going through it. I can send you a link to it. It's all about Docker. It's really good. I think Udemy has a sale going on right now. So I'll send that to you. And like, you know, like I came up as a statistician, like actuary slash statistician. That's like my background. It's a very just academic type of background and transitioning into like a data science type role where I have to start doing more and more software engineering. Um, It's been tough, but the best thing I've been able to do, I think the best thing I've done is like, you know, I could still write good quality code, still write code that, that runs, but in order to make it deployable, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I will just, I will make a software engineer sit down with me and tell me everything they did to, to get this to not only run on my machine, but just run deployed on the cloud and just ask the most stupidest questions. Like, be, I, I don't care how stupid I look. Like, I've got questions, please answer them for me because I want to learn. And I just kind of take that approach and it's been very, very helpful. And, and I've just seen the accelerate, like the cycle of like accelerated returns on my learning just exponentially grow from there. Um, so another question, uh, again, from Hema, uh, I, I've got no clue how to answer this one, but is there a standard to identify the number of topics and hyperparameters like alpha and beta when we do topic modeling or NLP stuff. Um, I don't know anything about NLP or, or topic modeling, so hopefully somebody here has experience with that. I'd love to hear from you if you do. Like language topics? We did something at HireVue where we trained, uh, I think, I can't remember what the network was, but we trained an NLP network on 400,000 resumes. And then we just use uh, a clustering algorithm to find the isolated pockets. And in the centroid words, we're actually pretty actionable. Like achievement would be surrounded by accolades, scholarship, bronze, like all these words are like, oh, like you want to go like that to the AI system that found it because it's useful. Um, but then the number of topics is kind of a gray area because like if you guys have looked at these clustering maps, you can find some that you think are great. And then you can find others that feel really ugh, like maybe, it, you know, reminds me of like that Rick and Morty episode where like you have like these things that are morphed together. That's what some of these clusters feel like where you're like, they're not, it's not a solid topic, but you can kind of stare at it cross-eyed and see there's two or three things in here. Um, we, we dealt with that on the vision side with images, but also on language. So kind of drill, drill down a little bit further. 
uh, on that question. So is, is there a standard to identify the ideal number of topics and hyperparameters, or is that what you're doing with the clustering? Um, I think at the time our favorite clustering algorithm was um, TSNE. And I think since then that has been replaced by what's the new popular one that people use instead. Someone, there's a new one. There's a new Glove. sexy one. Glove. That's for the language encoder. Right. Um, there's a there's a clustering algorithm that I thought was preferred now over TSNE for clustering. Um, maybe I can. Oh, uh, has grid in the name. Man, it's been a while. Sorry. I'll I'll see if I can find it and I'll throw it in the slide, in the chat. Yeah. If anybody else has. Any tips on that, please uh, go ahead and let us know. And yeah, this class is apparently, that's the one I was talking about. It's free, man. I paid like 15 bucks for it. Damn it. I think it's UMAP. <laughs> so TSNE versus UMAP. Oh, cool. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, Greg, that was that Dogger class, that same one that I paid $15 for, which is now free. It's, it's all good. Um, any other questions? I have a question. Oh, go ahead, Nushev. Uh, uh, yeah, Jackie. <laughs> uh, it's a quick question. And we touched on hackathons a bit before, and um, I would like to try one, but I've never done one before. So do you have any advice on that? That's a, that's a good question. I've actually, you know, I've never done a hackathon, and I know Eric has. So Eric, do you want to uh, chime in here? Yeah, sure. Uh, just do it. Uh, because you know, like, just do it. Um, I'm like my first hackathon. I was like, well, I, I think I know enough to where hopefully I can do something useful. And if I don't know enough to do something useful, I'm going to learn from somebody who does know enough to do something useful. And, uh, it, you know, it was a good experience. And like the, the one that I, um, dropped the thing at the hack for housing one, I was just talking to the, the organizer and, to double check on the skill levels of things. And he said, it doesn't matter. Like novice to expert, it's okay. We take, we take whoever, you know, we, we get and we're, we're ready for that. And he said, we all, we have a nice bell curve of people who are signed up. You know, most people are kind of middle of the road skills in whatever they're bringing, whether it's UX or uh, Python or SQL or whatever, you know, it, do it doesn't matter. And so the best thing to do is to just get in there, give it a try and, yeah, just do it. There you go, Tom. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and people are nice. People are cool. Yeah, they want they want they want to succeed and they want to see you succeed. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. I I agree with this, and and yeah, and I've I've uh, been a mentor for two hackathons before, and they're all hosted in in Australia. Uh, it's Hack Makers. Uh, they're gonna have a huge one uh, right now. I think the name is. Um, smart cities hack uh lots of projects in there and uh basically they try to pair you up with uh, a diverse team with with different um uh, skills and to me uh, from a coding's perspective like i don't help much but from a business perspective in terms of how you pitch your idea um it's uh, very uh enjoyable for me uh, where I saw, I've, I saw teams come up with, uh, some nice, um, fraud detector, uh, uh, technology, um, and you know, the way they, they created the story behind it, uh, why they built the model, um, how the model is, um, performing, uh, that task, um, is, it's a nice thing. And, uh, you know, they put some rules around, you know, how to pitch, um, and there's a chance to win some money. So you really lose nothing 
by participating. So I fully agree. Eric, just do it, try it, and then uh, see if you like it. So I I won a hackathon once. I got three thousand dollars, and I blew it all on snowboarding. Like the day <laughs> after, and my wife was like, "Uh, this isn't this isn't play money," which was pretty funny because I said, "If I can't play with my winnings, I don't want to win." Like. <laughs> I don't want to, I'm not motivated to go do another one, but I, I've had the opportunity to host these. So I've hosted three data competitions. One, we raised $15,000 and we gave it away in huge checks, which was super fun. Um, and yes, yeah, so I've kind of had that experience too. I, I like the idea of doing hackathons where there's like a performance metric, something that's very objective to measure. I've seen other ones where there's panels and groups of people pitching. Those for me have kind of, I've become disengaged. I it's hard for me to be motivated as a participant or even a judge on those. I, I don't know why. I'm curious what other people think on performance-based hackathons and machine learning versus like Kaggle style versus a committee with a presentation. Yeah, I'd love to hear uh, from anybody who has experience with this. I, Tom, go for it. I'll just, I'll just say I, I haven't done much, but the few that I've done, they're, they're just challenging. They help you grow. Um, they help you improve your pipeline tools. I, I just can't... I. Uh, but I, they get so intense. I don't like to do them very often because I'm, I'm super lazy. The smartest engineers are the lazy ones, right? <laughs> I think maybe, maybe Ben, you like the, the Kaggle style. If I understand well, maybe you like the idea of the underdog kind of taking on the experts and, you know, coming up on top. Maybe that's what motivates you more than, or is that what you're trying to say uh, I, versus, you know, being, I, I like to know if I'm winning during the competition. So something that's subjective. So it's funny. Cause I always bag on R versus Python and I lost a data competition to an R shiny app. And I kind of like <laughs> for good reason, cause it was sexy. Like it looked amazing. And this was for skull candy. And we thought like from an analytics perspective, ours was way better, but they had an R shiny app where you could actually like, Ooh, wow. Look at my reviews. Um, it's so that, yeah, if I'm investing, which is funny because now I work in marketing where now I would actually see that as an opportunity to kind of play with the ooh and the ah. But it, back back then, seven or eight years ago, I felt I, I didn't like those types of competitions. I didn't want someone to beat me with an R shiny app. <laughs> the best thing to happen to R shiny is that you can pull it into Python now. Oh, you, oh, you can. Yeah, I remember always feeling like that was a miss on the Python side. Like, man, this is these are shiny apps. As much as I like to talk crap about R, they're pretty slick. They look really nice. Well, and so my only goal, that's my cool. only goal was to get a thumbs down from Langer, and I achieved my goal. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so if I may, I would offer a little bit of a different perspective. Yeah. So I've participated in a number of hackathons over the years, and I've also participated in a number of data for good kind of things. Uh, in particular, once I did a data kind event at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation when I lived in Seattle. And what I've found universally is that the data for good types of uh, events that I've attended are actually more realistic about what I actually did day in and day out as an analytics professional. Because you're working with like real world data sets and they're all dirty and they're crappy and people don't really understand what they want and they don't necessarily know how they're actually going to extract any value out of the data rather than somebody coming up with a cool idea for an app to build, which is fun, by the way, don't get me wrong. But what I've found personally is that those experiences working with like data kind types of projects were more like real world kinds of things that I did as a professional. I'm uh, interviewing somebody about data for good um, in a couple of weeks. And 
Driven Data actually has a bunch of cool competitions that are all about helping people in and doing data for good. I'll, I'll link that here. Uh, but if you just go to drivendata.org slash competitions, uh, you'll see that they've got a whole bunch of really cool competitions that you can get involved in. Um, but yeah, I guess the uh, Jacqueline to answer your question, you just, just do it, have fun. Like it'd probably be a great resume item. So definitely go for it. Um, a chicken, Jacqueline, a chicken entry method that I would not judge you for is I noticed a lot of contestants not using their real name. That way, if you don't perform well, you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but but uh, I'm sure if you do several of them, you'll get quite good, actually. Open it up for one last question, if anybody has one. I didn't see anything in the chat, um, but if anyone has a last-minute question, go ahead and take the floor. Just a quick one. Go for it. I just want to follow up on the hackathon. I'm not uh, – technically, I'm not a – I'm a non-tech, okay? I don't know how, how to program or anything like this. But could a person like myself join these kind of hackathons? Yeah, I think they're pretty open. Like, um, So, for example, like the city I live in, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, they have like hackathons that are hosted by just some community event, community organizer. So I would say go to like meetup.com and look in the city that you live in and just type in like, you know, hackathon or data science hackathon and anybody can join. Cool. Thanks. For the ones we would host, we would always provide starter code. So we'd actually give contestants a working kernel immediately because we didn't want them to be confused. And I, and so that was, that was really good for people to just get started today. Awesome. So hopefully that was answered your question Tor. Awesome. Cool. Um, anybody else got any last minute questions? Otherwise we'll go ahead and call it the evening be sure to check out the interview i released today on the podcast with c and lewis she's awesome very entertaining had a great time interviewing her um got some other awesome episodes lined up for the rest of the month greg's episode is launching next friday i thought it was this friday but actually it is next friday so next friday tune into the episode uh, with greg and listen to it and come prepared with questions because i think greg would uh, love to answer questions on on what he was talking about um Got a lot of other cool, cool stuff happening for the podcast. I just booked a couple of interviews with some really, really cool people, uh, one of which is John Vervaki. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, but he's he's freaking awesome. Um, John Vervaki, Tiffany Schlein, and some other really, really cool individuals that will be coming on the show. Um, it doesn't look like there are any more questions. Well, take care, everybody. Have a good rest of the weekend. Remember, Comet ML office hours happen on Sunday. So if you did not get enough of me today, you can still get more on Sunday. So be sure to check those out. Um, those are also a lot of fun. As usual, this will be posted on the podcast and on YouTube. Uh, you guys take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. And remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everybody. Kudos. Thanks, Harpreet. Thank you.